This morning we're continuing in our discussion concerning the attributes of the nature of God. And remember what we said, and we're not talking, this is not a class that is going to be exhaustive of all of the attributes of God. First of all, I don't think it's what the Lord wanted us to do. Secondly, I don't have that ability. I know we could have it by the Holy Spirit. I don't think he gives that to us because the attributes of God are infinite. So we're only discussing a few of them. The attributes which we have already discussed have been the omni, the three omni attributes. Remember that omnipresent omnipotent and omniscient. Remember that? Always present everywhere at once. What was the second one? Omnipotent, all-powerful, always able, and does the, his will according to his, does what he wants according to his power, according to his character. And then what was the third one? Omniscient, he knows all things comprehensively. He knows us thoroughly, completely. There's no place to hide. And then David spoke about the attribute of God's immutability. God, as to his character and as to his nature, does not change. And he distinguished between the unchangeableness of God's nature and character and the seemingly changeable, and he does, the various ways in which he works out his nature, and sorry, he works out the activities of his character, displaying his nature through the activities of he does this, and he did that, and he went over here and did that, and everything began to look like he was changing. But in it all and through it all, God is steadily at work for one purpose, and that purpose is according to his eternal will. And then last week, we talked about the sovereignty of God. God's sovereignty. He is ruler over all things comprehensively and completely. So we've learned that these attributes equally comprise the essence of God. Remember that there's no one attribute that is more important than the other. They are all equally present in God at all times. And we've learned that without any one of these attributes, can God be God? Can God be God if he's not immutable? Can God be God if he's not omniscient? Can he or not? No, it's impossible for God to be God apart from any of these attributes or even from a uh, diminishing of any of these attributes. And the purpose of all of this is to do this, is to show how each of these attributes informs our understanding of the love of God. And so I think we've already done that to some extent already. And we continue this morning. Now, this morning, we're going to turn our attention to the attribute of God's character, one of the attributes of God's character called his righteousness. Now, this is where the rubber hits the road, and this is where all the problems are going to begin, as you'll see in a moment. But first, what I need to do is to make sure that we distinguish between God's nature and his character. How many of you know this? You have a child who acts out in a way that is unusual for him. Any of you ever have seen that? And what do we say? That's not who he really is. Have we, do we know what, have we seen that? 
we make a distinction between who a person is in himself, his nature. What kind of a person are you? What is it that makes you up as you are? And so there is a nature about us. And that nature is displayed how? How do we know you're cantankerous by nature? Because you act cantankerously. How do we know you're generous by nature? Because you do something, you're giving, and there is an activity that displays who you are. And often our activities display contrary to who we really are because something has caused us to act in a way that's not, if you would, natural to who we are. And so the nature of a person, the nature of God, is who he is in himself. Theologically, the attributes of God, therefore, can be put into two categories. And we're going to call them the absolute and the relative attributes, although theologically, you know, we're talking about the communicable and the incommunicable attributes. And I think those two words carry with them thoughts that uh, we don't need to get into. I think they're somewhat confusing. So we're going to talk about the absolute attributes of God first, which you've already discussed. These are the attributes that are of God's essence. These absolute attributes make God, if you would, who he is. On the other hand, God's nature is the expression of, sorry, I should have said God's character is the expression of his nature through those attributes that are related to his work in creation. And so these are called relative attributes. The relative attributes are those which express his absolute attributes. The relative attributes are the expression or the activity of his character, what he does how he acts, what he says. Those activities are an expression of who he is, and all of those are as the consequence of creation. All of those attributes are of consequence of the the creation. None of those attributes are active in God before Genesis 1-1. Now, I know what you're thinking. Wait a minute. What does that mean, that God is not righteous before Genesis 1-1? What did I say? The attributes, which call relative attributes, the character of God, is not active. When we talk about character, we're talking about that which goes outside of ourselves to something else. Amen? Are you with me? Which extends outside of ourselves. And before the creation, there is no outside of God. What is he going to relate to? To whom is he going to speak outside of himself? How is he going to express his character outside of creation? And so these are the attributes that are potentially in God. They exist in him. They exist in him. They are as essential to him as his absolute attributes but they are not expressed or activated, if you would, until Genesis 1-1. Does that make sense to you? And we'll understand this and see it a little more as we move along. 
God's relative attributes are those that are the activities of his character which are in keeping with his nature. And so the reason we know God is a certain way is because he does certain things. But he does these things in relation to the creation. And so his relative attributes, and I like to call them his relational attributes, are those which are the activities of his nature in keeping with his nature but are the expression of his nature into the creation, into our lives, so that we can know who he is and we can experience his presence with us. Therefore, God's absolute attributes are descriptive of his nature. Let's make sure we get the distinction here. It's very important to get the distinction. And his relative attributes are the actions of his character, which are in agreement with his nature. Now, do we get that? There are two types of attributes. Don't you love the cold weather? Your hands get such where you can't turn anything or whatever. Do we see that? Very basic to understand as we continue on. So this means that if God had not created, no creation, only God exists. This means that his relative attributes would have remained in him potential but not active. Are you with me? Okay. Are you with me in this? Are you okay with this? Don't want you to get confused and don't want you to be misunderstanding. So I don't want to just tell you something and move along. I want to make sure we are getting this. Because it's often misunderstood and misapplied. And we have to be very clear about these distinctions, especially as we talk about them in relation to the love of God. No creation, no active attributes in relation to his character. But where are the attributes? Do they exist? But they exist how? In God, potentially ready to be expressed the moment he says, let, remember that, let there be light. The moment he begins to create, his relative attributes begin to be expressed. The very moment he creates, the relative attributes begin to be expressed. And so while God's absolute attributes are essential to God's being as God, make sure we did. This is going to be a sting of force, maybe. The absolute Attributes are essential to God's being. Can God be God without being omniscient? Can he or not? No. Can God be God without being immutable? No. These are essential to his nature, to his being as God. His relative attributes are those which he freely through no outside compulsion or manipulation or requirement. Nothing outside of God requires him, manipulates him, encourages him, leads him in any way to express his relative attributes. He does it because he wants to do it. And so those attributes he has freely determined to exercise in keeping with his nature and of his purpose.
So here it is. For instance, mercy is a relative attribute of God, a relational attribute. Can God be God without expressing mercy? Yes. Does God have to express mercy? You, you, I told you it started to be a little stingy. Did, did, did I do that? Did I just warn you a little bit? Little needles are coming up. Does God, is patience an absolute attribute of God? So here's how you think about it. In the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In the Godhead. Just keep it there. Don't go anywhere else. Stay in the Godhead. In God himself, is there any necessity for God to be expressing mercy? Does the Father express mercy to the Son? Does he have patience with the Son? Are we beginning to see this? With whom are these attributes associated? Us. Was it required of God to be God in order to be the... Well, did God have to be the creator in order to be God? Can God be God without creating? Okay. Therefore, can God be God without expressing mercy? Yes. Before the creation, God has always been God. But before the creation, he was not expressing within himself, among the three persons of the Trinity, mercy. Why? There was no need for mercy, Chris. There was just no need. Jesus didn't do anything and said, oh, mercy, Father, mercy. The Holy Spirit said, look, I'm going to have patience with you. It's not there. Actively, it's not there potentially but it waited for what the creation so we must be sure that the absolute attributes of God are essential he cannot be God apart from any of these attributes which we've already discussed but can he be God apart from his relative attributes Yes, because he has always been God, and before the creation, he was as much God as he is today, and these relative attributes were not expressed. They were, if you would, dormant in him, waiting for the appropriate time of expression after Genesis 1-1. Do we see that? Because we want to make sure as we move ahead looking at the love of God, that we don't create a God that has to do certain things. However, now, once God created, listen to how I'm going to say this, listen, there's foolishness out there in theology land. After God created, he self-willingly determined, he self committed himself, if you would. That's not proper English, Charles, but it's okay for me to say that. He self-committed himself. 
to his relative pro, uh, pronoun. Relative pronoun. There it is. There's the old. That's a grammatical thing. To his relative attributes. When he created, he determined in himself, I, because of the integrity of who I am and the necessity of my will being fully and completely and perfectly always being done in fullness, I must... express these relative attributes. Do we get that? This is not something that is God, God is required to do because we ask him. It's not something God re- is required to do because we need it. It's not something it, that is required of God in order for him to whatever. It is required of God as a self-determining re- requirement to be consistent in himself of who he is. Amen. So this is why after the creation, when Adam and Eve are created, and he creates, let us make man in our image according to our likeness in Genesis 1.26. And in chapter 3, we see the fall coming. Remember, in 3.6, and he ate. Eve took a bite, and Adam ate, and then sin came into the world. Why didn't God just abolish the whole thing and start all over again? Because he had already given his determination of what will happen. It was a self-commitment. God had to send Jesus. So I've heard people say, well, you know, if Jesus hadn't come, then that's foolishness. If Jesus hadn't come, there would have been no creation. Amen? Do we see that? There's no such thing as Jesus hadn't come, then you and I would be lost forever. That's foolishness because it would say that God's God's predetermined will failed. And is it possible for God's predetermined will to fail? No. So let's make a distinction, and hopefully this is helpful to us. The way God acts toward us, these are relative Attributes, these are the expressions or the activity of his character. It is not essential for God to do this having anything to do with the creation itself. These are attributes of God which he has personally self-committed to activating once he creates us as his people for the purpose of achieving his will. This is why these attributes function among us today. The reason we want to make sure we see this is because we need to make sure that in every case, all of us are prone to this, we are lowering our self-esteem as far as significance personally, individually, and making sure that God's esteem rises higher and higher. We don't want to make ourselves too important here. Now, another thought. Up to this point, I think, I'll ask you, has it been pretty clear and and pretty enjoyable what you've learned about God's love and connection with his attributes? I mean, hasn't this been encouraging? 
I think what we've said before, God's love is what? Omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, immutable, and sovereign. Anybody have a problem with any of that? But you see, this morning, we'll just introduce it today and go on next week. This morning, all that changes. Everything changes today as far as our appreciation and agreement with this. If we were to go out on the streets of New Orleans and ask folks, do you believe in God? Most people would say what? Yeah. And by the way, let let me just add this caveat here. It is unbiblical and a lie for anyone to say, I don't believe in God. It's impossible. So when someone says, I'm an atheist, and you're quoting him, and what's his name? Dawkins. Dawkins. Was he an atheist? No, he was not an atheist. Was he an atheist? No. Was he an atheist? May I hear your answer? Well, how can I say that? He, he said he was an atheist, Gordon. Ah, that's it. He said he was an atheist, but he was not an atheist. How do I know that? Because the Bible says that the knowledge of God is implanted in everyone. Where does it say that? Somebody said it to someone somewhere at some time. Romans 1, verses 8, 9, 19, and 20. They just lying. Did you hear me? So the next time someone says they're an atheist, I don't want to hear you say, well, Joe Blow is, is an atheist. That's not right, Eddie. Don't you participate in that man's lie. You take the side of God and say, he is an atheist. He says he's an atheist. We were on a plane. I said this a little we were going to Russia at one of these events, and I don't remember. We've been over there so many times. I'm sitting next to a young fellow from Germany who is, you know, says he's an atheist, and we're talking together, and he says, I'm an atheist. And I said, no, you're not. <laughs> no, no, challenge them. Challenge them. And he said, no, I am an atheist. I said, you're not. And he asked, well, what do you mean? And we talked about it a little more. He says, okay, I'm an agnostic. Okay, now we can talk. In other words, it's a possibility. No such thing as an atheist. Where was I? What kind of a God do you believe in? It's not, do you believe in God? That's not a good question. Everybody believes in God. Don't ever ask the question. Forget it. You're wasting your breath. The question is this. What kind of God do you believe in? Now, think about it. What are most people going to say? A God of what? Love. Love. And I say it that way because I say it in relation to what the world says. Love. Love. This is the kind of God we believe. I believe in a God of love. I do not believe that God can be God without being a God of love. Okay, fine, fine. You know, sometimes what we do when we evangelize, we start off with God loves you or God of love. That's the wrong place. Because we're not communicating what the Bible says. 
Because what does the world say and believe when it says, I believe in a God of love? I believe God loves, have we heard this before? God loves everybody. Have you heard this before? And because of that, God would never do this, this, and this. God would only do the other. Haven't you heard these things before? Is this biblical? Is this what the Bible presents? Do we in this class believe, as the world states it, do we believe in a God of love, as the world would state it? No. No. Not at all, rooster. No. You see, here's where the needles start coming out. And the fur begins to fly. Here's where the major distinction begins to occur. You see, the distinction isn't God is omnipotent and his love is. Okay, we got that. We know that. God is immutable. Okay, we understand. Everybody believes that, really, really. What kind of a God do you believe in? Do we believe in a God that is love as described or identified by the world? Do we believe that? Do we or not? No. If you believe that, so what does that mean? Well, God is favorably disposed toward me, love. God has affectionate feelings for me, Paul. Love. God is always going to overlook my failures. Love. Isn't that what we think love is? Are you with me this morning? Are you here? That's what the world says about love. That's what they hope it is. And so is that God's love? Do we see that portrayed in the Bible? So we begin to get into this attribute of God, which changes everything. You see, we we look at the Old Testament, and we see a God who is a judge, a fiery judge, but is also merciful. We look at the Old Testament, we see a God who curses. Did you know God curses? What chapter is it, Frank? Do you remember? I think it's Deuteronomy 27, the curses and the blessings. God curses and he blesses. What kind of a God is that? He punishes and he also pardons. And the most astounding and really egregious thing to the world an offensive thing to the world is this. God loves and he hates. I've heard so many people say, oh, no, God, God doesn't hate you. He hates the sin. You haven't read your Bible right. I mean, Steve, how can my God, a God of love, hate? There's no place of hate and love. There's no place of wrath and love. There's no place of punishment in love. 
Isn't that what the world would say? Are you with me today on this? We have to be very, very careful not to present the gospel in the context that God loves you. At least not initially. Because they are not understanding or hearing or receiving the truth as it is in the scriptures. And let me relieve you a little bit. Is God a God of love? Biblically speaking, yes. Does he love us, biblically speaking? Yes. Is he affectionately drawn to us, biblically speaking? Yes. But we're saying the world's understanding of that is incorrect. Do we see the distinction? Are you getting, are you following me this morning on this? Yes or no? So when you present the gospel, do not begin with, you know, just God loves you and wants you to have a better life. That's not the Bible. Even to say, I passed the uh, Christian Science Church the other day. It has God as love on it. Is that the truth within that context? No. Because the Christian Science Theology denies the divinity of Jesus. That sign is not true within that context. You say, well, the word of God is always the word of God. Are you kidding? When Jesus, remember, battled with Satan in the wilderness, Satan says, here's the word of God. Jesus said, nope. Why? Because in that word that Satan quoted, he missed not quoted the words, but he misquoted the application and the meaning. Come on, come on. Be with me this morning. The word of God is the word of God, not just in words, but in meaning, meaning and in application. The word of God is the word of God as it rightly, biblically conveys the truth about God himself. Then it is the word of God. Therefore, it's imperative that we first understand righteousness. How do we take a God who loves and hates, who curses and blesses? How does that work? It works within the context of understanding God's righteousness. When the Apostle Paul writes his great theological treatise, on the gospel in Romans, after saying, where you at, how you doing, love and kisses and everything else, and this is about Jesus. He says in verse 16, what? I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. Verse 17, for in it, what is the pronoun it referring to? The gospel. In the gospel, what? Not the love of God. He does not say the love of God. So he says the righteousness of God is revealed. The righteousness of God. His love certainly is understood and seen within the attributes which we've discussed. 
But this morning we take a turn and begin to see the attribute of God's love must be seen within the context of his righteousness. His is a righteous love, which is radically different, and the world opposes this kind of love. That's why the world rejects the gospel, because it will not accept the understanding that God's love is a righteous love. Therefore, it rejects the gospel. <clears throat> they, are not, they are not rejecting the love of God in their context. They are rejecting the love of God within the biblical context. Do you see that? They embrace the love of God within their own understanding. But the gospel is the righteous love of God. Now, God's righteousness can only be understood, and I'm going to say this very quickly. We could go a whole time on it, but I don't think to do that. The righteousness of God is his right actions. Righteous right actions. Let's just simply say it like that. And in order to have right actions means that there could be also wrong actions. So in order to have right and wrong, what must you have? A standard. Do we see that? Now, what is the standard of God's righteousness? His personal holiness. His personal holiness. He is immutable, holy. He is sovereign, holy. He is holy in all of his attributes, which means this. In Leviticus, the Lord says, Leviticus 11.44, Yahweh, the Lord, declares, I am holy. 19.2, you shall be holy as I am holy. You've heard that from 1 Peter. Yahweh says, I am holy. He's making a comprehensive statement about himself. It is a comprehensive statement that he is without any fault, any failure, any weakness, any corruption, any sin whatsoever and forever. God is holy. We have here a perfect and pure being without any taint of anything that would be classified as wrong. In fact, he himself is the definition of what is right, what is pure, and what is holy. So in order to be righteous, righteousness is righteous as it relates to the standard of God's very nature. Do we see that? Righteous is righteous in relation to the standard of God himself being in himself right in every respect. To say that God is holy is to say that I've said that. God is saying that he himself is the standard of all moral perfection and purity. He's the standard. <clears throat> now, you remember, he did share that standard with the Israelites in Exodus chapter 20. What is that called? The Ten Commandments. The, Ten Commandments, the law. This means that everything about God's nature and character is holy and perfect and pure. For how long? Forever. Why? He's immutable. He's infinite. 
He's, remember, the aseity of God. He is self-existing. So, and it is God's righteousness, which is the outworking display of his holiness. God's righteousness is the outward working and display of him being a holy God, of what is holy and pure and perfect. Therefore, to say that God is righteous is to say that all of his works, how many? All of his works, all of his ways, how many? All of his ways, all of his activities, all of his purposes, all of his plans are are in moral correspondence with his personal holiness. To say that God is righteous is to say, and we have trouble with this, everything that God does is right. Okay. But everything that God does not do is right. Now, you see, that one should bother you. Because how many times have we maybe not said it, or maybe we did say it, but there's something going on in our life. And when referencing this, we say it's not right. How many of you have ever done that? There's only a handful in here who's ever thought it is not right. All of us have. It's not right. Right according to whom? To whom? Right in the natural sense. Everything that we are experiencing in Christ is right. Too bad. Too bad. See, Chris is, has taken this to another level. You say, right. And when we talk about the love of God, is there any area where God's love is not right. So your loved one is dying. We shared Donnie's grandson died several days ago. Was the love of God in that? Yes. Is that a killer for your soul? Yes. We would say that's not right. The problem is we don't have sufficient understanding and appreciation of our God. And we don't like the idea of not understanding. Therefore, we make decisions of what it should or should not be. Amen? So righteousness is where the rubber hits the road as far as God's love is concerned. God's righteousness means that his every activity, every motive, every thought, every word, every deed is morally perfect and pure in keeping with his holiness. Amen? So this morning, what kind of a God do you believe in? I believe in a God of love. But a God of biblically defined and explained and experience love. So when you're talking to yourself, you're talking to others, you're talking especially to unbelievers, make a clear distinction. God is love. 
1 John 4, 8 and 16 are correct. Amen? But God is love within a particular context. He is not pell-mell love everywhere and all the time and whatever. His love is categorized and informed by his righteousness. If God's love is not righteous, it's not God's love. Amen? Next week, there'll be a prayer time in here, and then we'll be coming back the week after next. Again, hopefully most of you men are going to the uh, retreat, and uh, we'll see those of you who are not. We'll see you next Sunday. Thank you so much.